Welcome to the Story Powers podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Ana Cabrera. Ana is a writer, a coach, a communications professional, and an adjunct professor. She's also a social media powerhouse, and her heartfelt and vulnerable posts regularly receive thousands of views. Ana describes herself as a huge fan of Francisco Mafus and lasagna. But there's no surprise there. Everybody loves lasagna. If you like the show, please leave us an iTunes review and subscribe. It really helps other people find us. And if listening to Anna does not put you in a kind and giving mood, then you, my friend, have a heart made of stone. Ladies and gentlemen, Anna Cabrera. Anna, welcome to the show. Hello. Let me get one thing straight. Can you really run in heels? I can. I've been running in heels since I was a little girl, probably, when I was trying on my mom's shoes. It's, it's one of those rare talents. It must be very disappointing that uh, you probably didn't pass on that skill since you have two boys. Exactly. <laughs> I'd be equally as proud of them if they did. I mean, no judgment if they want to try that. <laughs> it just seems that the demand for running in heels is typically <laughs> slightly lower. <laughs> it might be, and I just don't know about it. True. That is very true. Uh, there's a quote here you might find familiar. Rarely is marketing oneself or business about hardcore selling or advertising. It's about the elements that brings, bring audiences to talk about it immediately and for years to come. What are those elements, then, that make people talk about it? You know, when something is heartfelt and something is authentic and something comes from experience, that's when it compels people to listen. You know, when something is too rehearsed or seems manufactured, people can tell. And you can't be an effective writer, effective storyteller, effective coach, effective really anything without having had some background story, origin stories, as you, as you have made popular in recent days and recent weeks, um, without that authenticity, without that actual experience to support you, it's, it's, hard, to get, it's, it's hard to get people to actually listen because they'll, they'll know, they can tell. I find that very interesting because one of the things you do is you write for other people. And that is something that... Perhaps I'm just too much in my own head to figure out how to emulate someone else's voice or speak in their voice or write in their voice. But how do you balance that? I mean, you're talking about authenticity, but when you're writing for other people, how you know how do you square that circle? It's been over the years, a good fortune that I've had is to be able to talk to so many people. And as a journalist, you're you're taught to get the facts, right? Uh, just to, to make sure you have the story put together in as honest of a way as possible. However, as a storyteller, as a friend, as a mother, as a sister, as a coach, as a partner to someone, you, you want to get to the heart of things, not just the facts, but the feelings. So before I write the story for anybody, whether it's a business or a peer or I'm ghostwriting for somebody, I talk to them a lot. And I, I think as an, as an actress too, when once upon a time I, you know, I lived in theater, um, there is, there is magic and purpose to getting into someone's heart 
and not trying to emulate them necessarily, but to try to understand them. And the more compassion and the more understanding you have for another human, the better you can speak using their voice. So it's interesting that you say that I write for other people. I do. But in you know, on LinkedIn, even though I'm talking to other people and I'm writing for their benefit to say, you know what, be kind, make sure that you're positive, make sure that you're noticing a different perspective in life when you're unhappy. Most of the time I'm talking to myself. Most of the time I'm trying to encourage that same kind of kindness and positivity and compassion out of me. So um, not to draw this out, but when I do write for other people, it is in that similar vein. How would I tell the story if it was mine to tell? You said something there that I think shows both of our ages. You said that as a journalist, you're supposed to look for the facts, <laughs> which is very cute. And the fact that I didn't laugh out loud means that we're both from the same generation. <laughs> You've got composure. <laughs> <laughs> See, yes, it's the magic of podcasting that it's so hard to edit. When you talk over each other, it's just so such a pain to edit afterwards that I learned to shut up. Uh, <laughs> But that took some holding back. <laughs> oh, God, you're right. It's funny because as I was saying it, I thought, oh, God, am I lying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's cute. It's those things that I think our children will hear us say and they go, I mean, what are they on about? <laughs> it's going to sound like our parents saying, I walked five miles to school uphill both ways. <laughs> yeah. This would this this sound like one of those, um, which I think we all had of, Oh, when I wanted to call my friends, we had one phone in the house and it was bright red or yellow. And then I had to call my friends. It took a long time because you had to dial each number and wait for the thing to come back. And then you had to twist the cord into the bathroom so people wouldn't hear you. And they're just like, no, 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 this is, this is not real. <laughs> no, one, no one has lived that way. I know. You see the YouTube videos where they show you know, kids, Gen Y. It's Gen Y? Gen Z. Whatever, whatever the newest generation and they put a rotary phone in front of them you're like mm. call somebody yeah, <laughs> yeah. like how <laughs> yes yeah, so i i don't think we should go down the rabbit hole of discussing the generational gap it will <laughs> get us completely off track um, you mentioned linkedin and social media and you and i have very different approaches to social media um, mostly because yours is successful <laughs> isn't no, I'm kidding. Um, but it is true what are you talking about <laughs> oh, we're getting there but but it, it, it's true that uh, a lot of view you get a lot of views and engagement and and that does not come from having a million followers right actually you, you know the number of people you have as followers is not a particularly high one compared to a lot of other people on linkedin but you get very consistent engagement mm -hmm. so can, can you just describe briefly what most of your content is and why did you decide to do that well i joined linkedin officially in 2012 forced by the the media organization organization that i worked for it was uh, i think I want to say it was in the, the infancy of LinkedIn. It must have been. I can't imagine it was around much longer before that. But it was um, it was not a platform I enjoyed. It felt very inauthentic. It felt like a lot of resumes and you know job seeking, that kind of thing. No judgment on anyone who was using it at the time. But for me, it wasn't anything compelling. That said, neither was Facebook, neither was Twitter, neither was Pinterest. I had just been a social media 
user, um, not Instagram. But uh, a few months ago, one of my clients had asked, can you hop back on LinkedIn and just start doing um, posts for us? And I thought, oh God, what's that going to look like? I had really no, no followers. I think I had 800 when I started back in January. Yeah, I want to say January. And um, this, this user named Shmoli Katz, I don't know if you, if you're connected with Shmoli. I, 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 th- I think I am, yes. <laughs> Lovely. And for some reason, he found my content, which was part, um, it was, there were some views or some um, videos on customer care, some things on doing reviews. It was really primarily for this client of mine. But when I started talking to Shmoli and I'm thinking, you know what, I can use this for other things. And I wanted to talk about what I had been working on over the last couple of years anyway, in our executive coaching, my partner and I, on consciousness, awareness, mindfulness, positivity, kindness. And I thought if I can use this little corner of LinkedIn with my 800 followers and really just bring some kind of as overused as the term is positivity to this space, I'm going to feel good coming on here. And it's not going to feel like work. It's just going to feel like a little, just, you know, like a little kiss to, to new friends. And I think people bought into it. Um, it's, you know, the following it still isn't really large. I think it's just under 12,000 as of, as of this week. Um, it's not in the hundred thousand or the 200,000 or the 2 million mark, like the Bridget Hyacinths and the Oleg's, that kind of thing. But that had never been my intent. And I'm not going to lie and say the likes and comments don't matter. You know, the following doesn't matter. It does. If you're on social media, it, it does, right? There's a dopamine rush to seeing that you've affected somebody. But for me, when I get the comments that say, this felt good today. I needed to hear this today, or I had been thinking about this and thank you for switching my perspective. That feels like that kiss that I was talking about. That feels like that hug that is so necessary and so hard to get from a social media space, which can be nihilistic sometimes, right? Like, and you've seen it, you you get trolls sometimes, you get, um, you know, nasty comments sometimes, but there's so few and far between it it revives my belief that there is more goodness and more people looking for goodness and kindness and compassion and humor in your case than they are looking for controversy. Yes, I think that the type of content you put out also determines significantly what you're going to get back. Now, between the two of us, I'm significantly more willing to, to be controversial, to occasionally be uh, be an ass. Uh, I don't mind. I mean, it, it, I I am that. <laughs> so it's it, you know sometimes I want to you know poke a poke a bear from very close range because I find it amusing. You know, yeah. and, and part of it is also trying to find humor in things. Yeah. And sometimes you you go places where people are not very comfortable, and I don't mind that. But it is very interesting how because your stuff i think is almost exclusively if not necessarily positive but what you're not doing is you're not calling people out and you're not call, you know you're not doing anything that arguably could irritate someone they either will resonate with it or they won't and and then the, what you get back seems to be positive and the other thing i find very interesting is 
I have lots of friends. I'm not lacking friends. But my friends, they like being jerks, right? So what my friends don't do is they say, oh, you know what? This thing you said, it's very intelligent. It's very wise. It meant a lot to me. They say, shut up. What are you talking about? <laughs> so the only place where you know any opinion I ever have gets rave reviews in social media. <laughs> in personal life, it just doesn't happen. Right, right. I love people saying how there's like their partners are very supportive of everything they do. And I've been with my wife for a very, very long time. And usually she's like, yeah, no, that's not that funny. I was like, well, but, but 70 people liked it here. I can see they clicked on it. It's like, yeah, it's not, not very good. You could do better than that. I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> but you know what? When you say that, you know, you poke a bear, you, you say controversial things, it never comes off like intent to polarize where there, there are some people that are like that, that you can just see that they're trying their hardest to, to, you know, dig that, that dagger into someone's back. And what I appreciate about you is that you do it in a very intelligent way and you, you put it out there for debate versus for the purposes of being controversial, just for the sake of being controversial. So that's probably why you and I are friends, <laughs> because I don't typically have a lot of friends that hurt just for the purpose of hurting. I just I don't see the, the point in it. There is some charm to the idea of being a contrarian. I think a lot of people, perhaps because you know we all, to some degree or another, have experienced social anxiety, there is this charm in thinking that you are one way or you like certain things and that and, and no one else likes those things or no one else is that way and that makes you instead of weird special and i think it comes a little from that is this approach of you know i i know better and the other people don't get me because of something that is lacking in them not something that is lacking in me and i think some people take that to adulthood and then it just becomes you know i'll say offensive things for the pleasure of being offensive, and then it's I'm not doing anything wrong. It's just that people don't get me. I think you've hit the nail right on the head. You're, you're that's probably right. Ninety eight percent of the time, with two percent of the globe just being crazy <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. just for the sake of it. But you're right. There's there's pain that I find is always connected to the need to hurt, the need to offend, and I don't judge those people either. Though there's room. There's room for them. There's room for contrarians, just as there's room for idealists. So I probably live more in the John Lennon uh, area of humanity, the Khalil Gibran. It, it's okay, and I'll do the judging for both of us. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> so this is part of my part of my you know budding interactions with uh, with your good friend Jay Abbasi involve he him giving a very measured view of something and me coming out with some absurd nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do appreciate that approach. The guests can bring the wisdom, I'll bring the nonsense. I I think I'll always deliver if that's the, the proposal. <laughs> but anyway, when I said earlier that our approach to, to social media is different, this is what I really meant, is that what I always do is I tell a detailed, self-contained story, and then try to get some type of moral or reflection out of that. So that when almost every time I 
do anything on social media, that's the approach I normally take. But your approach is almost the opposite of that. Whereas you were talking about you know deep and vulnerable feelings, but there's almost never there are almost never details to it. So even when you imply that there is a situation that has caused you to have that reflection, I don't think I've ever seen you use details on any of those posts. So you know how del- how deliberate is that? <laughs> it's it nothing I have done in these last several weeks has been with any kind of deliberation, it's, it's been a fly by the seat of my pants kind of approach and it's working. (laughs) (laughs) But I knew you were going to ask me this. I don't know why there was something that I wrote uh, not too long ago and you're, you're smiling. I can see you, you remember this. And I said, I made a decision today. I took action before I was ready and it hurt. I just want you to know it's, it's okay. Most of the time to take action before you're ready, but sometimes be a little bit more measured, be a little bit more thoughtful and conscious. And you DM'd me right away and you're like, are you okay? <laughs> what did you do? I know. <laughs> because people say stuff on social media, you know, I, I still haven't figured out what the what the right measure of concern is for 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 things. You know, in my case, I can almost certainly guarantee that if I ever say any type of thing that sounds that I'm massively depressed, there'll be no question about it because I'll give you the exact situation that has caused it. Um, but, you know, you're, you keep your cl- cards very close to your chest. <laughs> and you know what it is, because like I said, I'm, I'm writing for other people, even though I'm writing to myself. It's, I, I like taking a feeling and I know someone else is feeling it. So instead of me, you know, coloring it with my own experience. I just want to take the thought and the emotion and share that part of it. So you are very much a storyteller as I am too, but you're right. The way that I um, communicate on LinkedIn is always about just here's the feeling, here's the perspective, here's the frame. You put the picture in it, whatever your picture is, you add that. I'm just going to give you the framework for it and know that you are not alone in whatever it is that you're that you're feeling. So it's probably attached. And I'm just saying this out loud now, I've never considered this. There was something that I wrote a little while ago that I said, you know, when someone's having a hard time, don't say, oh, I know how you feel. I've been through this too, which is a very kind thing to do. Unbeknownst to you, however, it kind of dismisses where the other person is, right? So even though it has not been consciously deliberate, I probably have thought about it subconsciously in that here's what I want to share with you. And I want you to think about it in the context of your own existence, not mine. I think the reason why I I wanted to ask that question is because to some extent that goes that approach goes against a lot of what I believe to be almost undeniable in how to tell not only a good story, but how to, to deliver a good speech in public. Because the one one of the things I tend to to rail against people when I'm doing evaluations of their speeches or when we coach I'm coaching them and trying to get them to improve is it cannot be generic. Absolutely. So because yeah. a lot of people have this approach of I want to talk about the feeling of being afraid, and then they just talk about the feeling of being afraid without talking about the real circumstances behind them. Yeah. And although in theory it makes some sense. It actually doesn't work. In public speaking, it doesn't work because we don't get the feeling that, I mean, if this is a real story, if these are real feelings, 
tell us the real story and connect the real feelings to, to something that happened, because otherwise it just feels very theoretical. And that doesn't, that doesn't, I, I've never seen that work, at least in public speaking or on the stage. Right. And, and the other aspect is, and this is something, you know, I'm still sort of developing my approach to what I, what 100% feels makes a good story. But one of the things that I think is absolutely essential is a certain amount of specifics. So typically, you want a specific moment that the story revolves around. Um, and this is one of the reasons why history books, even though they had everything you could possibly want to, to tell amazing stories, were so boring because they were this you know, 50,000 foot view of what happened. There was, you know, it's this happened over this period of time. There was, they never focused on that specific day where that person was at one place and that thing happened because that's what makes the story more exciting. And the other thing is you want some, some details just so we can connect to, to that universe. So for example, if you and I are talking about LinkedIn, it's very easy to talk about people selling you on direct messages or talk about the anxiety after you know the first half an hour or an hour after you post and nothing is coming through and you're going, oh, what the hell is happening? <laughs> Did I completely lose my touch now? Uh, so you say that and the person listening to the story understands that you understand social media or LinkedIn. And if you don't have that, then sometimes it's difficult to ground that story in, in, a, reality, in a shared reality. Right, and, and that's perhaps what I was curious about and still I am slightly baffled about is that how without ever going into those things, it doesn't seem to make any difference. I think the video helps. I think in text, some of the stuff you're putting out there wouldn't work as well because at least we know there is a person saying them and we can see you and we can get it from your tone of voice. But but from a writing point of view, the just the text of what you're saying I would be surprised if that got anywhere near the type of engagement that the videos get. You're right. And there was one story that I did tell that was specifically about me. And here's, I think now that we're having this conversation, if I were to utilize LinkedIn to tell my story, you're right. How I'm doing things now, <clears throat> excuse me, wouldn't, wouldn't work. But the communication I'm getting and, you know, and, and let's just be honest, the business that I'm getting is from the person who saw themselves in this generic, um, as you say, this generic frame that I've put out there. But there was one story that I wrote in regard to um, an experience that I'd had in high school with a, a chemistry professor or a chemistry teacher who had written you know, terrible names across the board and wrote garbage and then wrote my name off the board. It was worse than garbage. And that was one of the first articles that I had written or first only text posts, text only posts that I had written. And that got a lot of engagement. It got a lot of pity, right? It was, oh my God, this shouldn't have happened to you. Um, that's terrible. Or, you know, I had the same experience. That did not make me uncomfortable in its vulnerability. My approach to public speaking, even when I teach, there's always, it's always anecdotal, but how my my messaging on LinkedIn is very, very different. It is very broad. It is not the traditional storytelling as you teach, which is very, very true. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's no way that I would have made a career as a writer, or as a journalist, if I had lived in a generic space. There has to be details. There has to be color. Um, 
the, I'm the worst person to talk to about LinkedIn and how to do things right because it's completely against the grain of everything that is tested. But I just think it's reaching a certain part of the heart that maybe is untouched and maybe that's why it's working. I'm not really questioning it at this point because it's it's hitting people somewhere. Enough messages that I know, hey, you know what, even from the algorithm perspective or traditional social media, it might go against the grain, but it's it's bringing conversation. And that's, that's the part that's, that's working. Even though it work as a TED talk or in my, in my classroom space, or when I'm doing, you know, actual speaking engagements, you're right. It would never, ever work. But for some reason it's working here. It might be working because of one other element that is pretty important in, in storytelling. And this is something I speak to a lot of people and a lot of them don't think about as much, which is, who was the, person that I read this from. This is almost certainly from Kendra Hall, which is definitely the, the top keynote speaker on storytelling at the moment. And she talks a lot about co-creation. And she says that, you know, although you need some specifics to ground the story in a shared reality, you also need to leave enough space left so that the audience can make the story their own. And this is one thing that I had never thought about this before I read it in her book, uh, Stories That Stick. And she was talking about why you should never use images when you're telling a story uh, or should almost never use the images because if you're describing something like your childhood and then you go and put a picture of yourself up there you've made it a lot harder for people to think of themselves as children yeah. because they're just thinking of you or mm -hmm. it says you know if you talk about your dream house don't get a picture of your dream house up there because your dream house is going to be different than everyone else's dream house so let them fill in the gaps. And I think with the stuff you're doing, you're clearly leaving a lot of space for people to fill in the specific details of each scenario that you're describing, and they are filling those details whichever way works for them. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you say that because even in um, selling homes in real estate, you are, you are taught take down pictures of your family when you're selling your house, when you're staging it, so that the family coming in can envision themselves and it doesn't feel like they're walking into someone else's space. So you're, you're probably right. And it's funny we're having this conversation. I had not given it this much thought, frankly. <laughs> well, you're, you're not trying necessarily to make a living out of talking and talking about storytelling and teaching right, people right. about storytelling. If I don't know a little bit more than, than most people I'm speaking to, then it just looks very bad on me. <laughs> no, this, is, this is wonderful. You're making me think. Well, you know, I t I'm usually settled for making you laugh, but think is okay too. <laughs> and you do, you really do. <laughs> you are, you know, you, you by, by your own descriptions, you're a writer, you're a speaker, a storyteller, but you're also a coach. So one thing I wanted to talk about was the stories people tell themselves. and Or actually, should I say, the stories we tell ourselves, because I don't think we are by any stretch of the imagination out of this, out of this paradigm. Oh, the stories we tell ourselves. Gosh, this has been, this has been a discovery. Uh, my apologies if this keeps stinging. Um, I find the stories we tell ourselves are not always fair. They are peppered with a lot of stories other people have told us of who we are, what we're worth what we've done, right? And sometimes there's grave judgment. And I don't know if this is a cultural thing, honestly. Um, 
I don't know if North Americans are harder on themselves and the Europeans are more relaxed. I know anytime I've ever set foot on European soil, the the air feels different. The atmosphere feels different. The light looks different. The people feel different. There's there's this abrasiveness toward ourselves here in North America that we really are so rushed to judge our own successes based on what society has told us we're supposed to do. So I don't know if this is the truth anymore. Again, I'm showing my age, but there was a time where, you know, you needed to graduate, you know, four-year college or university, and then take a couple of years to travel and to discover yourself. And then all of a sudden be married and have children by a certain age and have a house by a certain age, other properties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's this grave judgment when that hasn't happened. But even within pockets and categories of those spaces are other things that we feel we're supposed to have. And when we don't have them, all of a sudden the story doesn't feel as good to tell unless you manufacture certain certain elements and add them to that to make yourself feel better. What I found in, in my coaching, the most successful clients are the ones who after a period of time look back and go, I am and I say this so often, and it probably sounds so cheesy to you, I am exactly enough and exactly where I've always been supposed to be, even in pain, even in the depths of depression, that I needed to be here to complete the story or to color the story as I intend to give it, not as mom and dad told me I should have. I am guilty of this. I'm speaking a lot to this because this is exactly my existence, was you know, it was an immigrant family, it was an Asian family, very focused on education and building some kind of empire, not necessarily to take over the world, but to pay forward the sacrifices of generations before us. And then to be able to give our children a new existence and then for them to give their children a new existence. So I did all of that. I did, you know, I did the school, I did the marriage the baby, the mortgage, all in time. And it really drove me to postpartum depression, first of all, which lasted to a 10-year depression because I was chemically and neurologically changed. And I refused medication just because I had this judgment over what medication would do to the child that I was nursing at the time. And that fear carried on over the 10 years that I just refused it. I thought, I don't want to exchange these feelings for other side effects. So I turned to consciousness and awareness, mindfulness, prayer, meditation, um, inward, you know, like really in, it looking inward versus relying on something else, which I don't judge. If, if medication is the way for you, please do go that way. My God, it is better than nothing. But um, completely just annihilated your initial question <laughs> no, it, 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 it's all right i had i had to resist the urge to say halfway through that you are completely right it did sound cheesy to me <laughs> uh, and to actually set you straight about you know all this air that you think is different when you come to europe it's there's a very easy explanation you are on holiday <laughs> that's what you're feeling this lightness of being is you being on holiday yeah. not us so you were talking about depression and all this stuff so, so yes right it does at first blush sound cheesy but i live by it because that's what i lived with for so long that i wasn't that i was completely inadequate 
in comparison to my parents and my brother and you know everyone else that seemed so accomplished and no matter what I did no matter how much money I made no matter how accomplished I was on paper the feelings of inadequacy really drove me to to a darkness that I and you talk to me now like it's all bright sunshine and but it's it comes from a place of real um it's it's a very tragic past and I I will share with you as even though I keep uh, cards very close to me, as you said. Here's a little bit of insight. I have been suicidal thrice, and it was scary and painful, and not anywhere anyone on this planet deserves to be. So I think that's why I color everything in white, because it's an attempt to pull as many people out of that space as I can, having having been in it for a long time, ten years. A decade is a really long time to be that in that dark. It's a very difficult situation for everyone. And I, I've not had that experience, but there is a history of depression in, in my family. And I've made, I think, the same mistakes that everybody makes when you encounter that in someone you love, which is you just think that's a story they're telling themselves and they can talk themselves out of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's always the case. I mean, my my chemical understanding of the of depression is is very very limited. But I do understand that to a lot of people, it's well beyond their capacity to just talk themselves out of it or to motivate themselves out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's a bad story a lot of people tell themselves. Yes. And, and the only thing I can relate, I can I have felt personally could only be explained in my mind to to some sort of chemical imbalance because I remember I had just gotten out of a of a relationship which I knew was never really going to go anywhere um the fact that she was a lesbian didn't help uh, <laughs> sorry I, I tried to get that one in when I have the chance uh, uh, but no I, I had gotten out of this relationship and I had gotten back to Patricia who had been my first girlfriend and is now my wife and and everything was great I mean I could like could, there was nothing I could think about that wasn't absolutely fantastic in my life at that po- point and I just started feeling down about everything and it went on for six months and there was nothing I could put my finger on that made any sense whatsoever and at some point I was telling myself listen I'm just gonna have to break up with her because she doesn't deserve to 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 be with someone who's so miserable and she didn't even notice a great deal but I noticed for six months and then at one point it went away now I have no idea what that was but knowing my family's history I can imagine what it was although it had no catalyst that I can think of and and again I mean could they have talked myself out of it well, I tried, and it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think sometimes, sometimes we, as much as I am, or trying to be the story guy, sometimes I think we focus too much on on having a story that the weight of a narrative drags us down. And and I'll give you the simplest example of that. Right now, I'm happy. There is this conversation. There's the company which is lovely, but there's also nothing more complicated here than basic human interaction. And I'm happy. If I think about everything that's going on in the world or all the things in my life that are unresolved, there's lots to be concerned about. But if I just drop the story and just be, 
-hmm. life's pretty good. Yeah. And I, I don't know, sometimes I just feel we get caught up in, in all these narratives we keep telling ourselves and trying to find, well, this happened because of that. And if this carries on, then that's going to happen. When sometimes if you could just turn a blank page, you find that that's nothing particularly scary about that. You're so right, because, you know, being attached to that narrative and dragged down by that identity, sometimes I think for some people gives them permission to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. I, and I, I speak for myself, my sadness permitted me to misbehave, permitted me not to move forward, permitted me not to be a better version of myself because I wrapped myself in this identity of being depressed. It was almost like, this is who I am, not this is what you're going through. This is not what you are dealing with or fighting. This is who you are. And you are, you know, emotional, you are broken. And I said it as much to myself as much as I possibly could because it excused so much. And that's where that danger lies in in being wrapped in that narrative. You're you're totally right. One other thing that that I I also think when 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 talking about stories and what we tell ourselves and, and how we we deal with our own stuff, with the, our own complications, is, is something that I have tried a lot to, to bring into the way I, the types of stories I tell. And this is probably obvious to anyone that has watched two or three of those, which is they're always about small things. And I have this feeling that it's a lot harder to... To think you're happy, it's a lot harder to be content with yourself if you keep looking for these grand narratives that involve adventure and accomplishments and all these this, this big benchmarks that very few people can live up to. And partially that's why I think whenever I'm, something seems to me like, okay, there's a story in here, it's always about, you know, my daughter playing with the shampoo bottles or about me losing my cool with my employees and then realizing what an idiot I am. Um, because I tend to find that those small things are what add up to your life. You know, that's what your story of your life is about. Is you know, the big thing is more theoretical than anything else. You know, all this, you know, as you described in your own story about you trying to achieve all these things, but you know, being married and having children and getting whatever job, they're great when you tell other people about them. But we don't spend most of our life telling other people about all the great things we've achieved. Mm. We spend most of the time living it on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's definitely not as glamorous as it often looks from the outside. Yeah, but the story of our lives are in every you know, small moment, right? It's, it's those tiny things. That's the beauty of life is that it evolves so slowly and so subtly. But when you look at it over the course of a lifetime, you were to look back. It's not those grand moments, you're right, that that make it up. It's the little things. It's your your baby smiling at you for the first time. I remember the first time my son giggled, like it was yesterday, and he is 19 this year. Those are the things I remember, not graduation day, not you know, the first time I bought a car. It was the first time my baby boy smiles at me, and that's God, there's such grace to that. There's humility in that. I feel like, like, wow, I've spent so much time trying to tell this big grand story of how important I am. When really, those are the moments to remember. And I think that's a beautiful note to end on. But I should add that 
there are many things that my wife and I disagree about, but I think one of the reasons we are together is because she can definitely appreci appreciate the value of the little things. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, I just had to do it. Sorry. <laughs> okay then. <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm of the belief that oh, you lose the friend but not the joke. And if the the one being put on the firing line is me, I'll make the joke anyway. I see that. I am joking though. Let me just be clear. Okay. <laughs> everything is everything is as it should. Okay. Uh, no messages of commiseration, please. <laughs> and, uh, I'm aware we've just gone past your hard stop by about a few minutes. <laughs> and, with, and with sheer nonsense, clearly. None of this was necessary. <laughs> it's the joy. It's the joy. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, other than LinkedIn, is there any other place you would like people to find you? They can visit me on anna-cabrera.com. Um, it is still in, in the works, but LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. If you do make it to Spain with the family, we can do this. Uh, we can do this in person one of these days. <laughs> no visuals, though. <laughs> yes, try to look at my wife and not giggle. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves, and until next time.